morning. Today's passage comes from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who was at the Father's side, has made him known. Life keeps going as if Christmas never happened. As he said, it changed everything, but did it really? It's interesting, when Christmas is over, one of the biggest selling items in the stores is plastic storage bins. You know, all that stuff you got. Now you have to find a place for it. So you can fill a bin and slide it under the bed or put it in the closet or in the attic or uh, in the garage. It's just stuff. Has Christmas really changed anything? Is our, our lives really different once the fun is over the worship the presence has anything really changed well it has christmas really changed everything yeah life goes on and yeah there's still nations rise up and fall over the last two thousand years and people come and go live and die and wars and peace come and go but What is really different? What did Christmas bring? A lot of our presents that we get, we just put away and maybe bring out once a year or maybe never again. But did Christmas really bring anything really different? Well, in the passage we want to look at today, John, the Apostle John, gives us three presents that came with the coming of Jesus, with Jesus' birth. His walking on earth, that three presents that if we as Christians will learn to use these, to unwrap these, to appreciate these every day, I believe it can change the way we live. That we can begin to live lives that are not so filled with lostness and pressure and frustration, but lives that are full of joy and wholeness, even in the midst of a life that goes on and on. The wise men brought three gifts to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But Jesus brought us, when he became a baby, three far greater gifts that that John mentions in his passage about Jesus. So let me pray, and then let's look at this passage together in John chapter 1. Lord, thank you for coming to earth, becoming one of us. And thank you for these amazing gifts we're about to unwrap. May we learn, Lord, to live in the reality of them every day. Open our eyes that we might see what you really brought us when you came to be among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first gift that I see in this passage that he brought is the gift of presence. Now, presence as in he is present. 
He's among us. He is present with us. Notice how the passage begins. And the Word became flesh. This, I think, is one of the most amazing statements ever recorded anywhere in all of literature and in all of history. The Word became flesh. (laughs) The Word came to be among us. The Gospel of John begins back in verse 1 this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now that statement is an incredibly profound statement, but it's one that a lot of philosophers would agree with. They wouldn't have a problem with it. Oh yes, there's some principle, the word, the logos, that somehow was God, was with God, He was God, and all, everything was created through Him. He's some far-off being. I mean, that's something that a lot of people would say, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. But here's the most astounding statement, is that word, that logos, became flesh became one of us, became human, and walked among us. That is something philosophers have a problem with. (laughs) The God, the creator of everything, a spiritual being would somehow become one of us, became flesh and bones, took on the same stuff we're made of. And, And notice it doesn't say that he just put it on. He just didn't put on flesh like putting on a coat or something. It says he became flesh. He fully became one of us. The God of the universe, the creator, became one of us. The theological term for this is incarnation. In, it's from the the Latin in, which means same as our in. Carne, which is flesh, incarnation, He was in the flesh. He became an incarnation. He became flesh. And the amazing thing about this is that God Himself then, because He became one of us, He experienced life just like we do. He took on aches and pains, (laughs) colds and flu, bacteria and viruses, hurts, hunger, sleeplessness, We sing away in a manger, you know, it's a great song, but it's got that line, no crying he makes. That's terrible theology. (laughs) That little baby that was born in that smelly hole of a stable, dirty, filthy, think about it, one of the filthiest places on earth, manure everywhere, he cried. (laughs) And he messed His pampers. Oh, wait, they didn't have pampers. (laughs) And Jesus, as he grew up, experienced all the things we experienced. He had the same, sounds a little crude, but the same bodily functions we do. He, He functioned the same way. He was human. He was human. He just didn't take it on or pretend to be human. He was fully one of us. The Word became flesh. It's mind-blowing. Why? Because a lot of us, and certainly philosophers throughout the years, a lot of Greek philosophers, 
see the flesh, our bodies, as evil. These are bad things. It's something to just endure for a while, try to beat down and control, just try to deal with until finally this prison of the soul, as the philosophers used to say, is finally shed when we die, so the soul finally is set free. And I find many Christians think that way. That, yeah, this body is just evil, it's just bad because it has its struggles and its lusts and all that, and therefore it's just bad and I can't wait to shed it so that my soul can be set free. Well, when Jesus became one of us, he proved forever that that's not true. Our bodies are not evil. They're not. They've been tainted by sin, just like our minds have, our emotions, our wills. They've been tainted by sin, these bodies. But they were created by God to be good. And these bodies are meant to be uh, something to live in and enjoy. And Because someday, see, this body will not be shed. This body will be transformed into from a mortal body to an eternal body. That'll be an amazing thing, but it'll be this body somehow. I don't understand how that all works, but it, it will happen. So this body, when Jesus became one of us, it showed that these bodies are something that are good. This is an encouragement to not see our bodies as evil, but see them as capable of great good or great evil, depending on who's in charge. Are we submitting to Him as Lord or are we running our own lives? Who's in charge? You see, remember what Paul said at the end of chapter 6, of verse, 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, what does he say? Glorify God in your bodies. You see, when Jesus became one of us, took on one of our bodies, it meant something miraculous could happen. This body could be a place where God could be glorified, where his presence could dwell. John goes on to say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. Literally, it's what he says. He pitched a tent among us. He's referring back to the book of Exodus where God was beginning to work with the nation of Israel and they, appeared at Mount, they showed up at Mount Sinai there with Moses and God said, build me a tabernacle, build me a tent and it will be the visual aid of my dwelling among you. It will be the place on earth where I will dwell. Later it became the temple, the place where God, though it could never really contain him, it was a visual aid that God is present among us. But when Jesus became a human being, when the Word became flesh, that became the tabernacle. That became the dwelling place of God on earth. Amazing that He would dwell among us in that place. I like the way Eugene Peterson translates this verse in the message where he says, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. When we first moved to Boise, we built a house in a little cul-de-sac. And there were a number of people who went to coal there, some to other churches, but we 
we loved our cul-de-sac because we built relationships there. We built friendships. We knew everybody on the block. Fourth of July, we had a parade and all the kids would go around and we'd all gather in our front yard. We'd have 40 people in our front yard and then we would light fireworks and we were a community that knew each other. When Jesus moved into the neighborhood, he began to throw parties and invited us over, (laughs) essentially. You see, he moved into the neighborhood to become one of us when he became flesh and blood. And here's the miracle. He was the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. And then he said to his disciples, he said, you know, it's good that I'm going away. Over in John 16. It's good that I'm going away because when I leave, I'll send the Holy Spirit so that you now can become the tabernacle, the presence of God on earth. That he dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. He lives in us. And he goes on in the verse, it says, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, he's referring to Exodus at the end of the book of Exodus where it talks about the glory and the tabernacle that was on earth. He says this in chapter 40, verse 34 of Exodus. After they'd built the tabernacle, it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle. You see, in that tent that they built, God's glory was so amazing, they ran. They were afraid. It was terrifying. But he says, when Jesus showed up as a baby and began to walk among us, John says, we saw his glory. But it wasn't terrifying. It was a glory of God that had never been seen in this way before. A glory of humility of love, of compassion, of grace, of goodness, so that sinners like you and me, when they saw Jesus, they didn't run away. They clung to him. They followed him everywhere. That glory that was revealed of the presence of God was amazing. So the first gift that John mentions in this passage is the gift of presence. That when he came, he came to us not in this scary tent, but in a human body teaching us forever that now we, in our human bodies, can become the very dwelling place of God. You see, that's amazing because it means everywhere you go, when you go to work, in your family, driving down the road, wherever you are, you are the temple. You are the living place where God dwells. You have the living presence of God in you through the Holy Spirit. That is an incredible gift. Now, God was present in some ways in the Old Testament, but this is different. This is a gift that we carry with us everywhere. So John's saying, hey, unwrap it. (laughs) Take it with you. Don't shove it under the bed. Don't hide it in the attic, but really live as though God is present with you wherever you are. Walk in relationship with him. The second gift I see in this passage that John mentions is the gift of grace. Verse 16, For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace, literally. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now he mentions here, as he talks about grace as a gift given to us through Jesus, he says, for the law was given through Moses. He sets the context for grace here by talking about the law. He says the law was given. Now, sometimes we see the law as bad, but it wasn't. It was a wonderful gift from God given to us, given to humans. The law is not bad. It's not evil. It was a wonderful gift, but not a gift that could give us life. Not a gift that would lead us to salvation. It was a gift to help us see our desperate need for Jesus. It's clearly stated the purpose of the law when it was given in Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, where Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So get this last phrase. For... Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The Mosaic law was a wonderful gift to us. It revealed the very character of God, the purity of God's character, how wonderful he is. And it was a gift to us by which we would always measure ourselves and see how far we fall short. That I'm a sinner and I cannot measure up. I need grace or I am lost. Our three-year-old granddaughter in the last week said to her parents, I try to be good, but I just can't. That's amazing theological insight right there. (laughs) You see, that's what the law does. Uh, We try to be good, but we can't measure up to it. We can never do it enough. We can never, and if we had only the law, how desperate we would be in our lives. But listen very carefully. That's all that the world has, is law. They don't have grace. They only have law. And we learned very early on that you better perform well if you want life to work for you. If you want to get, we learn it in school. We learn it at work. We learn it wherever we go that you better do well, you better function well, you better perform well, or you will not be blessed in life. That's the driving force in the world. It doesn't matter where you are. I I learned that very early on. I even learned it in seminary. (laughs) I remember clearly in seminary going through a time where I did a, a... final paper for the year. I'd worked real hard on it. It was an interpretive paper. I turned it in and then I had to present it in front of the whole class and they didn't like it. I experienced some law right there. It wasn't a great paper and they made very clear that it wasn't. (laughs) You see, we don't experience grace in the world. But John says, but in Jesus, when Jesus came, as a baby, we received grace. We received grace upon grace. What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved favor. I've quoted before the acronym God's Resources at Christ's 
expense. God's resources at Christ's expense. Grace. But it's, it's God's favor of us. Grace means when God looks at us, he says, Oh, I really like you. I am fond of you. I, I delight in being with you. I delight in being around you. And I find that most of us as believers, we don't believe that God really looks at us that way. Because we look at our performance. You see, we fall into law too, don't we? And we look at our performance and we go, well, I really haven't measured up, so God really couldn't be that fond of me. But grace says, no, it's not your performance. Law says, I've got to look at how I perform. How am I doing? How's my behavior? Grace allows us to focus on what He has done for us. He took on the cross our punishment. He took it all on Himself, which means we are covered by the blood. And so when He looks at us, He says, Ah, oh, man, I love being around you. I delight in you. I am fond of you. Have you ever just felt that and understood how much God, wow, God's really fond of me. He loves me. He delights in me. It's mind-blowing because that's not human. It's God-like. There's a passage in Isaiah 55. It's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. We often quote some of the verses towards the middle of the chapter where it says, My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. My thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, are my thoughts above yours. And we quote that in terms of saying, yeah, God is, yeah, he's so far above us, he's infinite, he's way above us, therefore, you know, he's... But what we don't often look at is the context. What is he saying is so far above us? Well, in the passage, it's grace. It's grace. The passage begins, hey, everybody who's thirsty, come and drink. Are you hungry? Come. If you have no money, come buy and eat at no cost. And you go, well, wait a minute. How do I do that? How do I buy something if I don't have any money? And it isn't going to cost me anything. That's grace. And then it goes on to talk about the pardon and the freedom of forgiveness that he offers us. And then it says, for my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. You see, what we don't understand as humans is grace. But when Jesus came, he brought the gift of grace, a gift of favor where God looks at you no matter what your behavior is, no matter how much you've messed up, and he says, I delight in you. Because what's true of Jesus is true of us because he delights in his son and we're covered by the blood and we're placed in his son. He sees us and he says, man, I'm fond of you. I delight in you. But he says, this is received. We have received grace upon grace. It can never end. It goes on and on, but it must be received. It's, uh, I liken this verse to, it says, we've received of his fullness, we've received of grace upon grace. It's like an ocean, and there's a full ocean of God's grace. And then a wave comes and we're overwhelmed by the grace. But then we blow it again. But there's another wave and there's another wave and it never ceases. You see, we've received continuous 
an ocean full of grace that we can never, ever exhaust. Now you may be thinking, yeah, but what if I mess up? What if I sin? The grace covers it. Now we should not choose sin. That would be foolish. And that's part of Paul's argument in Romans because there are consequences to sin, but that doesn't mean that God's favor ever changes. His favor never changes towards us. No matter what you do, he is as fond of you as he was before. So the second great incredible gift that Jesus brought when he became flesh and dwelt among us was the gift of grace. Unheard of. I mean, the Old Testament has hints of it, bits of it here and there, like Isaiah 55, but the fullness of grace, the ocean of grace came through Jesus when he became a man. We can never exhaust that grace. The third great gift that he gave us when he became a man was the gift of truth. Again, verse 17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. I love that, in the bosom of the Father. Father. Literally, it's the lap of the Father. Jesus being God himself, being in the lap, the most intimate place with the Father, has explained him. Literally exegeted him. (laughs) That's what that word literally is. You see, man, in our arrogance, we think we can somehow figure out truth. We think we come to it by study, by scientific exploration, by psychological testing, by rational thought. I can understand truth. I can come to truth. Folks, that is simply arrogant and wrong. Now, we can see a little portion of the truth. God has given us the ability to observe and think and figure things out. It's true, but anything that man can come up to on his own is like a puzzle piece in a much bigger picture. That's it. That's as much as we can come to on our own, is a puzzle piece. Is it truth? Sure. But if you're trying to figure out the whole picture from one puzzle piece, you're going to be lost and confused. And man is. And man is. When we try to speculate about things beyond our range of vision, we're usually wrong as human beings. But Jesus, it says, brought truth. In other words, he opened up reality to us so we could see reality, something we could never see before. John, a little later on in chapter 14, verse 6, says, quotes Jesus and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. John 8.32 says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You see, truth that Jesus gives us begins to set us free because it helps us live in reality. Jesus, when he became a human being, became our visual aid. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what authentic humanity is like, how we were meant to live? Look at Jesus. You want to know how we can begin to function in a whole and complete and healthy manner as human beings? Look at Jesus. He's a visual aid that helps us understand reality. Truth. Now again, the world thinks there is no truth, right? Hey, you're arrogant to even claim that you know any truth. 
That may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Uh, Folks, that whole relativism that's part of our culture, that's just foolishness. There's truth, real truth, and whether you believe it or not, it's still true. Whether you believe in gravity or not, if you step off a 20-story building, you're going to splat at the bottom. I don't believe in gravity. I don't believe in gravity. Truth exists outside of belief, right? But we have the opportunity to understand truth in Jesus. So the key to living well is knowing Jesus. Does that make sense? If he's the truth, the more you know him, the more you will understand reality, how you were meant to live, the reality of creation, the reality of life, the reality of how to function as a human being because he is the truth. He came from heaven and revealed reality to us about ourselves, about God, about the world, about history, about the future, everything we need to know to live life well as a restored humanity. And verse 18 makes it clear he came especially to reveal to us, to explain to us, to exegete for us who God is. Man, apart from Jesus, has spent all of the time man has been alive trying to figure out God. And that's why we have so many religions and so many different perspectives and so many ways of looking at who God might be. A recent uh, local writer, influential person in our community, wrote this. It's from the Idaho Statesman recently. This person said, A fundamental value of my faith is that we humans can never come close to knowing God. We understand the ultimate partialness of all spiritual beliefs, all established religions, all prayers, all ideas of the holy. These are merely approximations and nicknames. This person goes on to say, God is a completely unknowable mystery. Now, honestly, if Jesus had not come, I would agree with her. We do a lot of speculating as humans, but how can we know what God is like? We all come up with different ideas. How do we know one idea is better than another? So we make God in our, of our own making, in our own image. But if Jesus, God himself, became a human being and walked among us and said, let me show you what God's like, because I am God in the flesh, then we can understand truth. We can understand who God is because he dwelt among us. It's true, Buddhists, Hindus, Mormons, Muslims, etc. all claim to speak for God. And in fact, you can always see elements of truth in all of that because there's something about God planted in every human heart. So they do have a tiny bit of the puzzle piece. But the whole picture can only be seen in Jesus because only he came from God and gave us the incredible Christmas gift of truth. Only he, as it says here, exegeted him. That's a technical term. The rabbis used it for explaining scripture. Jesus came and explained God to us. Now, did he tell us everything about God? No. There is a lot we don't know about God. That's true. I mean, God's infinite. 
We are finite. We are so limited in our understanding of who God is. But Jesus revealed to us everything we need to know about God to be able to have an intimate, loving relationship with him, to understand the things that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's an eternal trinity, that he is love, that he is compassionate and caring, that he is holy. All the things that Jesus clearly showed us about who the Father is, about who God is in the Trinity. We can have confidence it's exactly what we need to know. Now it's true, we always should be humble about our interpretation of what Jesus has explained to us. We should be humble about our, ex- our interpretation of what Jesus has explained to us about God. But we should always be confident that Jesus has explain the true God to this ignorant, blind world in which we live in. And so the more we know him, the more we will see reality as it really is. Folks, Christmas changed everything. It did. Because it brought these three gifts and more, but these are the ones that I see John emphasizing here. It brought God's presence to us in a way where now we can live in the very presence of God, His life in us. It brought God's grace so that I have His favor. I don't have to live under the law and work hard to see and try to earn His favor. Rather, I can live in grace. Lord, I have Your favor. You delight in me and let me live in light of Your grace every moment. That is a totally different way to live. And we have the gift of truth, reality. We can begin to see this world as it really is, this ignorant, confused world. So my challenge to every one of us as we face a new year, 2011, make it your goal to not hide these gifts under the bed, in the attic, in the closet, in the garage, but live every day in the reality that Jesus is in me. He's with me so I can live accordingly. I have His grace, His favor. I don't have to scramble around and try to perform to get it. Rather, I can enjoy it and out of that seek to love Him and obey Him. And He's revealed truth to me so I can live in light of the truth that He's given to me. Let's open these gifts and use these gifts every day in 2011. We want to take communion together now. I want to pray for us and then we will take communion as a reminder that all these gifts, everything we have as believers are a gift of the cross because Jesus died for us. We have the gift of life. Let's pray together. How amazing, Lord, that you came What a miracle. It's something beyond our understanding that the God of the universe, the Word who created all, the Logos, became human, became one of us, flesh and blood, lived and died to take the penalty for our sin on yourself so that we could have grace, unending grace, an ocean of grace that we can never exhaust. So as we now celebrate your death for us on the cross, we do so with grateful hearts, knowing that it's 
undeserved love, grace, forgiveness. We thank you for coming, for dying for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.